traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly conversation around themes in the worlds of business, finance, and economics. I'm Stan Pinel, the banking editor. On Monday, British lawmakers voted in favor of taxes on sugary drinks. It's all part of a wider set of measures to curb obesity, particularly among children. To some, these sin taxes, which already exist in the case of alcohol or cigarettes, for example, are a sensible way to curb future health care costs. Others see them as the nanny state gone rogue and wonder when compulsory gym classes will be introduced to keep us all healthy. But do these taxes work? And if so, what can they teach us about curbing other undesirable behaviours, whether it be using plastic bags or indeed emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere? Today, I'm joined by Sumeya Keynes, our economics correspondent, and Edward McBride, who edits the finance and economics section. And Sumeya, you have looked at taxes on sugary drinks specifically, and you found that indeed they have the effect that you would expect them to have. Yeah, so one of the more recent examples is a tax on sugary drinks that was introduced in Mexico at the beginning of 2014. And the early evidence seems to suggest that it has been effective in cutting consumption. So one paper found that uh, consumption fell by around 6% relative to previous trends. The other concern that people have when thinking about these taxes is that retailers might not pass on the tax to consumers in the form of higher prices. For people to consume less sugary drinks, they need to see the tax reflected in more expensive sugary drinks. And the two working papers that have come out about the Mexico experience have both found that actually retailers passed on more than the value of the tax when it came to sodas. But at the same time, there are counterexamples that suggest that actually sometimes less than the value of the tax is passed on to consumers. Right. So when in Berkeley, California, recently they introduced this tax on sugary drinks, um, a couple of studies found that only around half of the tax was passed on in shops. And one proposed reason for this was that those shops had greater competition from elsewhere. So people, they might have been worried about people driving elsewhere to get their multi-packs of of Coca-Cola. So it's it's easier for consumers to drive to the next door city to Berkeley to buy sugary drinks than it is for Mexicans to to take a trip to the US to buy sugary drinks. So. Exactly. So a lot of the discussion around these taxes has to be around public policy and and impacts on bits of the population, particularly the poor. I mean, for example, on sugary drinks, you see an asymmetric impact, as economists might call it, where poor people are going to end up shouldering more of this tax than richer people. Sure. So so the concern is that the tax on sugary drinks represents a higher fraction of the incomes of the poor, and so it's regressive. And that has been a key argument of the sugary drinks industry. What's come out of the Mexican case so far is that actually the poor reduce their consumption by more in response to the tax. Um, and so although actually, yes, they do pay more of the tax as a share of their income, um, because they're responding more, that effect is decreased. The other point to make is that they also gain disproportionately um, from the health benefits of reducing their consumption of of sugary drinks. And so obesity and diabetes are both regressive diseases. It's harder to cope with those when you haven't got a very high income. And so those poor people gain disproportionately from those health benefits. 
This is all just another way of saying that consumers behave the way economists would predict, isn't it? I mean, the, the price of, of uh, fizzy drinks goes up. If you're poor, yes, you may be spending more of your income on fizzy drinks, but you can less afford the tax rise, right? So you cut back more. That, that's all we're saying here. It's, it's, it's fairly sort of uh, natural behavior, isn't it? Yeah, so, so most of the available evidence suggests that the poor do respond more to um, price increases of, of foods than, than the rich, yeah. This is incredibly paternalistic, isn't it? And in fact, we've had the same argument with alcohol, the same argument with cigarettes. Uh, essentially, the, the metropolitan elite makes a law because they think that poor people shouldn't be drinking so much or smoking so much, uh, and the poor end up shouldering the burden of it. So the argument that they were making in Mexico was in response to this huge increase in diabetes and obesity that the public authorities were seeing and, and the spiraling cost of treating those diseases. And so the argument is that people uh, making unhealthy food and drink choices was imposing a cost on the wider population in terms of raising healthcare costs. And so the government was, was trying to reduce that burden on the wider population. Edward, I guess there are two ways of looking at this. Uh, one of them is, is the state being overbearing? Is the state being paternalistic? The other one is the state often pays for health care of people and therefore has uh, an incentive, if not a duty, to, to stave off future health care costs. Absolutely. I mean, so far, you've been framing this as, as paternalism, as the, as the nanny state run amok, right? But you could also look at this as, as the government doing what it has a duty to do, I trying to solve the problem of externalities when, when people's individual choices end up imposing a cost on the rest of society. And, and arguably, that's what's happening here, right? That people who drink too many fizzy drinks, give themselves diabetes, become a burden on that public health care system, drain uh, lots of taxes or, or force taxes to rise or other spending to be cut back. And, and you can make the case that a good liberal government has, has a responsibility to prevent people from imposing those costs on their fellow citizens. Yeah, I guess the key difference there, and there are other instances of externalities, and we'll come on to climate change in a minute. Here, there is an externality, but there is also an internality, if you want, which is people are impacting their own health. And, and surely a liberal state has to understand that people will make their own decisions. These decisions may be bad decisions, uh, fairly objectively, but that's what liberal states do. They, they tolerate people making decisions that are not necessarily very good ones. Well, clearly, you have to decide where to draw the line. I mean, we had this debate with smoking, right? You know, everybody said, well, I should be allowed to kill myself with cigarettes if I want. And, and clearly, there is a healthcare cost that comes with that. I think what won the debate in terms of, of, of smoking bans, public smoking bans, was the idea that in addition to imposing those healthcare costs through your own behavior, um, you were also making other people sick through secondhand smoke, right? And um, so there was a sort of double effect there. Clearly, the, the argument's a little bit more attenuated here because you're not making other people fat by drinking fizzy drinks. You're only making yourself fat, right? But there is still a, a very big cost. And you have to bear in mind, in, in countries like Mexico, the cost is dramatic. You know, the incidence of diabetes, the incidence of obesity is enormous. And, it, and the changes come very quickly. And, and there is pretty sound evidence linking this not just to, to overall calories, but actually specifically to fizzy drinks, because you can uh, drink lots of them and not get full. So unlike other things that, that might not be good for you, you can only eat so much before you decide, you know, you're feeling a bit queasy. That, that, that's just not true of fizzy drinks. So, mate, one of the criticisms on uh, these so-called sin taxes is that governments become dependent on the income that they generate. So alcohol duty, cigarettes duty. And so although on one hand, they want to see declining uh, consumption of these bad things, on the other hand, if consumption declines too much, then they, they lose a source of revenue. 
There have been sugar taxes in the United States since, uh, you know, at least the 1920s. So far, lots of those taxes have been stealth taxes rather than health taxes. The, the purpose of those has been to raise revenue. And over the last few years, we've been seeing this increasing transition towards these taxes as health interventions. So clearly, if you're introducing a tax and you want that to change behaviour in the long run, over the long run, that revenue stream will decrease. So it's not kind of a long-term sustainable way to run your public finances. If it really is a health intervention, then you have to want for your revenues to decline over time. Also, I mean, there's a good uh, economic case to be made for for taxing bad things, right? I mean, by definition, and that, that's the way these taxes are being used, taxes act as a disincentive to a particular activity. So you don't want to be taxing something that you think is worthwhile, like labor or income, right? Things that you want to encourage. I think there's a sort of general sense amongst economists that the more you can shift the tax base to undesirable things, even if it means you, the tax base has to constantly evolve, you know, the more efficient it is uh, for growth. Yeah, so one interesting example of that is a carbon tax. Obviously, Paris uh, happening this week, uh, lots of talk on, on how you can uh, reduce the emission uh, of greenhouse gases. There are two essential ways of, of taxing carbon. The one that we're in favor of at The Economist has always been just a simple carbon tax. If you emit a ton of carbon into the atmosphere, you have to pay for it. Uh, the other one is a slightly more convoluted cap and trade system where there's a fixed number of permits and you can trade them. And, and that's what most countries uh, have been doing. So may I, just from an economic point of view, are these carbon taxes broadly equivalent to sin taxes on alcohol or cigarettes or sugary drinks? Sure. So the the carbon tax, what that's trying to do is say that, you know, if a firm is left to their own devices, then they will emit a certain amount of carbon. But actually, there's a greater social cost to that in terms of global warming. And so what the tax is trying to do is it's trying to align that social cost with the private cost of emitting that carbon. This is the polluter pay principles. Yes, exactly. So when it comes to carbon, the private cost of emitting carbon is less than the social cost. Um, And so what the carbon tax is trying to do is it's trying to raise the private cost of of emitting carbon to equal that that social cost so that private producers emit the right amount. And and that, in principle, is is very similar to a syntax where what the government is trying to do is make people make the right decisions in terms of taking into account the full cost of their decision to consume that fizzy drink or that fatty food. Uh, Edward, that sounds a a lot more sensible than a, a complicated cap and trade system. Why don't we just do that? Absolutely. Uh, Carbon taxes are are way more efficient uh, than convoluted cap-and-trade schemes. I I think the thing is that politicians and industry like convoluted cap-and-trade schemes precisely because they're convoluted, precisely because it's it's easier to sort of disguise sweeteners, if you'll forgive the expression, within the rules of the scheme. So some polluters are given polluting rights free of charge when the schemes start off. There are are ways to sort of make it seem less controversial when you're setting up a cap-and-trade scheme. With a carbon tax, it's kind of hard to hide, right, which is what makes it work well, but also what makes it very politically unpopular. Yeah, it's a tax. Politicians don't like new taxes. No, absolutely not. But actually, I think you're going to see more and more of these sort of call them stealth taxes because politicians have found a good way to sell them. They, they call them user fees in effect. And it's a way of, of signaling to other taxpayers, they're not paying the tax. It's only the people who do the nasty thing that are, that are paying the tax. So so we now have plastic bag charges. Uh, in some places, you know, we do have the carbon tax. We've got the fizzy drinks taxes. We've got user fees for people in 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 the court system. You know, there's this sense that 
the public will accept the extra tax if they don't think they're going to be the ones to pay it. There was a very uh, funny piece in the Daily Mail with uh, some woman uh, claiming great victory because she could avoid paying the stealth plastic bag tax by bringing her own plastic bags to the supermarket and thinking somehow she'd circumvented the system, whereas in fact she was doing exactly what the tax is designed for you to do. Anyway, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks, Sumeya Keynes. Thanks, Ed McBride, for coming in. You can read Sumeya's piece on taxes on sugary drinks at economist.com, along with more news on business, finance, and economics. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. <laughs>